Good morning. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, would you find 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I have to tell you that the last couple of weeks in this chapter has been a challenge for me. Um, Sometimes studying God's word is a challenge because of the difficulty of the passages, but this one's been a challenge because of its simplicity. Uh, Because as, as I have dug in, an effort to teach. Uh, the Lord has challenged me in the area of pastoral ministry uh, to be ma- more faithful in that, to be more devoted to it. I can certainly say that I identify with those pastors who would say that uh, the text of the Bible uh, works in the preacher, <laughs> takes its toll on the preacher first before it comes out to the, the congregation. Uh, so I'm grateful for God's word. And just know that as I preach this morning, I'm preaching first to myself. Uh, So we're going to dig into chapter 2 a little bit more today. And and we're still trying to answer this question, who can you trust? Who can you trust? This is a question of leadership and teachers in the church. Uh, We're trying to figure out what does genuine ministry in the gospel of Christ look like. And this question not only uh, begins in the church, but then goes beyond the church because a lot of Many believers are, are finding uh, voices uh, influencing them outside the church. But we want to be careful that um, the voices we listen to are grounded in the gospel because those are the ones that bear spiritual fruit in our lives. Um, so <clears throat> we need to see, we want to see churches that are made up of people who, who are convicted about the gospel, who, who are looking not to the here and now only, but looking beyond that into eternity. And we want to see believers uh, living for the things that last, uh, modeling their life after the patterns of eternal truths. And that pattern will hardly take place in the life of church members if it's not also evident in the lives of the leaders of the church, the teachers in the church. But gospel ministry isn't just that sounding negative side. Uh, There is uh, a calling out of sin and and correcting of error, but gospel ministry is more than that. Even here in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we get a picture of the broadness of gospel ministry. So think with me how Paul describes praying for the church. He describes ministry as evangelizing the lost, as equipping the saints, as defending the gospel, Loving the congregation, laboring among the people, modeling godliness, leading and feeding the flock of God, watching out for spiritual danger, warning of error and ungodliness, teaching the truth, exhorting believers to faithfulness, encouraging sufferers through trials, correcting wrong beliefs, confronting sin and rescuing wayward believers. And that's just in these two short letters. So the responsibility of pastoral ministry is, is not a small one, not a light one. And if a man would be faithful and fruitful to these things, then he, he cannot compromise into using worldly methods nor looking for worldly goals. So here in chapter 2 we have a picture of what this genuine spiritual ministry looks like. The Apostle Paul shows us a model of faithful spiritual ministry. 
We could sum up Paul's attitude by quoting again 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, where he, he calls himself a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. Ministry faithfulness doesn't look like living for the minister's agenda, but living for Christ's agenda. It's not about speaking his own message, but it's about speaking God's message. And here, again in chapter 2, uh, we started in this chapter last week and we were, were hearing that Paul is defending his ministry, the character of his ministry, as opposed to a worldly view of ministry. What would describe a philosopher or a, a teacher of religion in Paul's day is fundamentally the opposite of how Paul conducted himself towards the church at Thessalonica. He wasn't a magician. He was no smooth talker. He was no salesman of God's word trying to gain a following or, or rack up a nest egg for himself. He was a preacher of the gospel of grace. So he embodies for us uh, the character that gives credibility to ministry. And he shows us the ministry, what the ministry looks like that has been changed by Christ. Today's church, I think, faces a shortage of ministry leaders who look like this. The church, unfortunately, is being derailed so often by men who are not compelled by the gospel, but compelled by lesser things like money or power or prestige. But today we're going to look at a ministry example that is compelled by the gospel. And Paul would later commend these types of leaders to the church at Thessalonica. So in chapter 5, in verse 12, he says, Brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And he can say things like that to urge such respect for the ministry because he also gives such a high view of the ministry, such a high calling to the responsibilities of ministry here in chapter 2. So I pointed out last, year, last week that there are four traits, four character traits to this type of ministry, this faithful Ministry. The first one was gospel conviction. This is the confidence in the gospel that it is only the gospel that is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. And there's no, that there's no, no cost, no price that is too high to pay in order to declare and defend that gospel. And Paul points us to a godly motivation that the gospel ministry is no, no covering for some other ambition. Rather, the gospel ministry is working under the approval of God in order to please God and gives an account to God. And then we come to verse 7 in chapter 2. That's where we'll begin today. And we'll look at two more character traits of faithful ministry, faithful leader, spiritual leadership from chapter 2. And those are genuine concern and a transforming message. So if you're following in your Bible, look in chapter 2 and verse 7. Paul says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also 
how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. So this third character trait, beginning in verse 7, is, is one of genuine concern. And Paul uses two pictures, two metaphors to explain this trait to us. That of, of he was like a mother to the church and he was like a father to the church. Now, Paul's not facing an identity crisis, wondering who he really is. Uh, he's, he's just painting a picture of what is real. And the Bible gives us several metaphors for the church. Uh, you might have heard the church being described as an olive tree or as a field of crops or as a building or a temple. Uh, the church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. But maybe the most frequent picture of the church in the New Testament is that of a family. So we call God our Father. God has a son named Jesus. And those who, who follow Christ are God's children also. So the, the best way that we relate to one another is as brothers and sisters in the family of God. And so here in chapter 2, Paul is using that same kind of language to describe his care for the church. He's reminding them that he acted like a mother towards them and he acted like a father towards them. And he uses both of these roles to give a broad spectrum uh, to this description. Um, and by the way, if the, if the Bible had meant to present fathers and mothers as the same kind of, of person or same kind of uh, parent, then this example from Paul wouldn't make a lot of sense. Uh, mothers and fathers are complementary roles. And so Paul is, is putting these two together to give this full balance picture of his care. But look in verse 7. There's a big contrast to verse 6. I read this verse last week. Verse 6 says, Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. There's two heavy words there, glory and demands. Paul's saying we didn't lay upon you anything to, to, to call you to give us something. Whether it was right or wrong, Paul says we didn't ask for glory and we didn't make demands to you. But in verse 7, there's that big word, but. But we were gentle among you. Paul says we weren't those who cast burden onto the church. Rather, we were gentle among the church. We were gentle like, like a nursing mother. Now, motherhood sometimes does include pain and anguish. I can say that even though I've never given birth because I've seen things like that. Uh, and Paul has that attitude with the Galatian church when he calls them his little children. 
for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And he, there he was struggling with their, their lack of gospel awareness. But motherhood has another side, and this is the side that Paul is referring to with the Thessalonian church, and that's one of tender care and concern. What's more tender and protective and affectionate toward a newborn baby than his mother? That's the kind of care that Paul is pointing out. And verse 8 makes this kind of care more clear. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you. And that's a, a, a phrase that conveys a lot of feeling. It's this longing desire for the one you're speaking about. This, this phrase is used in ancient writing to talk about uh, a set of parents who, who had lost their children at an early age. And they had this longing to be back with their child. Paul's saying, I had this kind of concern for you. I, I had this affectionate desire for you. He also says we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. So he was ready not just to give his life for the church so that they might hear the gospel, but he was ready to give his life to the church to care for them, to encourage them, to love them, to point them to Christ. In verse 7, he says, we were gentle among you. Notice, he doesn't say, I was gentle to you or gentle with you. He was gentle among them. These men, Paul and Silas and Timothy, lived among the people, with the people, in the midst of them. And as he lived in their midst, he did not have a burdensome ministry to them. He, he had a ministry that was described by this gentleness of a nursing mother towards her children. A mother doesn't supply just the best food for her child. She supplies herself for her child to care for that child. And that was Paul's love for the church. Paul wasn't like so many who were trying to get something out of these people. He was, he was giving something to the people. He was motivated to see something worked in them. He wasn't rallied, rallying them to his actions he was trying to see Christ formed in them. So he was giving himself to the church to see those things happen. Later in chapter 2, towards the end, he even says in verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul had a great love for the church, a true love for the church. Back in verse 8, he says, because you had become very dear to us. Other places in the New Testament where we read this word, it's not translated dear, but, but beloved. So Christ is God's beloved son. And believers are God's beloved children. Paul is saying, you Thessalonians are like our beloved spiritual children. These missionaries were imitating God in the way that they cared for this new young church. Ministry is absolutely about gospel truth and it's about people. Paul would later tell the Corinthian church, I will gl most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And that's the picture of, of a motherly care for her children. That's the picture that Paul gives of his care for this church. 
And verse 9 probably starts a new paragraph in your Bible, but it carries on the same theme of, of sacrifice for the church. Paul is pointing out that he didn't desire to put his burdens on the church, but he desired to, to relieve the church of burden. Instead of charging the church for his ministry, he, he worked with his own hands, making tents so that he could provide for his needs so the church didn't have to take care of him, so that the church didn't have to bear that burden. Now you might wonder, well, why do churches pay people then today? Why do, they, why do teachers and preachers receive pay? If that's for the, the example of the Apostle Paul, then I mean, why should he do it and it not happen today? That's a perfectly acceptable method of ministry. But, but if we look at Paul here more as a missionary, uh, we'll get a better idea of, of his attitude. Uh, he, he goes to cities where there are no believers, not a single one. And he preaches the gospel in hopes that God would, would change the hearts of the people who hear the gospel. And as, as new believers come to faith in the Lord, there might be just a handful of new people. And, and then if he would turn around and say, now you pay me for this ministry, what a hindrance to the gospel that could be. So he was, by conviction, not wanting to bear that burden to the new believers, but, but simply work for himself so that the gospel could continue with no, no hurdles to that ministry. Now, as churches would develop, then Paul, and you can read about this in various letters in the New Testament, Paul would, would then teach those churches, it is, it is right and good to, to give back, to care for your teachers. But Paul was wanting to be sure that he laid no financial burden on the church so that the gospel was not hindered. So he, he says, we were like a mother to you, but also we were like a father so in verse 10, he's using this reminder language again. <clears throat> you are witnesses and God also. And so he tells them, you, you saw the way that we acted before you. You saw our conduct towards you. And then in verse 11, he's, he uses this phrase again, you know. He uses that phrase several times in chapter 2. You know, these are things that you already know. And then he points out how he, how he spoke to the people so he's putting these two ideas together. You, you are witnesses. You saw how he acted and, and you know how he spoke. And these things point to the, the care that Paul gave the church as a father. This is, these are roles of a father with his family to be an example, to live a life that the family, the children can see and then follow. So a father's leadership is first of all by example this is what he is connecting to. It's not by power. It's to set the pattern of godly living. A father is not a dictator in his home, but he is a demonstration of godliness. And so a pastor, someone in spiritual leadership, is not to be a tyrant, but he is to be more like a type of the person that God calls all of his people to be. He doesn't just say, follow Christ. He says, follow Christ with me. And Paul's example of his own conduct is very exhaustive. He says, you know, you are witnesses and God also is witness to how we, we were holy towards you. And that's pointing to how, how he acted before the Lord's sight. He was holy when it came to standing before the Lord. He was holy in his conduct. And the word righteous points to how he, he conducted himself before men. So in, in men's sight... And, and the people around him, as they looked to him, they would see righteousness because of his conduct. 
So before God, he was holy. Before men, he was righteous. And then he put those two words together and said, and in all this, we are blameless. There is, there is no charge that can be brought against us. There is nothing to hold against us. Paul says, we lived among you and we lived this example in which nothing that we said or expected out of you was anything different than what we were willing to do ourselves. There's no charge that can be brought against us. And that's the, the model, the example of a fruitful father who blazes the trail of his children to follow after him, marking the way for them to live a godly life. We could say that this is good leadership too. A leader should blaze the trail that he wants his people to go. But I don't get the sense that Paul is simply trying to be a good leader. Paul has godly character and he, he lived this way for the sake of the Lord because this is the right way of leading a people but with every good model, a model is, is to be imitated. And this is a common theme from Paul. As he lived the right way among people, he called those people to then imitate him. Like the Philippian church, he said, Brothers, join in imitating me. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. He told the Corinthian church, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And even as he lives a life worth being imitated, we hear this kind of fatherly leadership that in includes speaking with a, a certain authority. So he told the Corinthian church, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. They were an arrogant, proud people. He says, but I write these things to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So I urge you then, be imitators of me. As their spiritual father, he's calling his spiritual children to follow this example that he's already set and he's, he's calling them to do it with his words. I admonish you, I urge you, follow this this way. Fathers, in some sense, have a ministry of, of a prophet even in their home. So in verse 12, back in 1 Thessalonians 2, we read these words, we exhorted and we encouraged and we charged you. These are, are words that, that describe uh, the lifestyle of, of speaking in the life of children from their fathers. Fathers are to point their children in the right direction. And they're to come alongside them and urge them, speaking to them, encouraging them, go this way with me. And then to warn them, to charge them. If you don't go this way, these are the consequences. To say, this is what God has said. This is how we live. Come, let's do it together. And if... If we don't do that, then this is what's going to happen. I'm reminded of Moses and Jeremiah who said some similar things. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you might live. So a father lives out this model of godliness before his children, and then he, he uses his words to speak strongly to his children. Follow this pattern, do this. And if not, there are extreme consequences so live this way. It's also the role of a pastor or a minister in, in the church to say, this is what God has said. Let's do this together. And if we don't, these are the consequences. Father's responsibility as the pastor's responsibility is to set the pace, to lead by example, to speak the truth according to what the Bible says, and to speak as if these things are urgent because they are. 
Again, this isn't for the sake of power or control. Jesus said in Matthew 23.9, as he was condemning the Pharisees, he says, Call no man father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. There are some segments of the church who have gotten this point wrong, calling men in the church fathers. And he's not referring to the natural relationship. There are a lot of fathers here. He's referring to the spiritual relationship. So Paul said, he didn't say, I am your father. He said, we acted like fathers. And so men in the ministry aren't to become fathers who, who demand dependence from the church. We have one God, one father, God who is in heaven. So the role of, a, of an elder or a pastor is to point people to our one true father. We act like a father in the way that we live, in the way that we, 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 we speak to, to point our people to the Lord. But God is our father. We depend on him and we follow him. Notice in verse 12, these words again, we, we exhorted, we encouraged, and we charged you. But what does he say? Why did we do that? What do we, what do we exhort you to? What do we encourage you to? What do we charge you to? To walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See, there's a specific thing that this model and the specific end to this kind of speech is to point our children, to point the church, believers, God's children in the church to the Lord. The goal of this kind of ministry is rooted in eternity. It's, a, it's looking for spiritual integrity, for spiritual maturity, to see God's people fit and ready to enter into the kingdom that God has set up for his people. When I think about the children in my house, I want to see them grow up to be obedient uh, in my house, to be responsible members of society, to be productive and helpful to the people around them. Most importantly, to be faithful to the Lord. But when I think about the church, Colossians one twenty eight is maybe the best verse to think about. We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what men in the ministry are aiming for, to see people of the church to be mature in Christ. It might be that this kind of care doesn't sound very compelling to some. And I think that might be because many, even in the church, have lost a, a biblical picture of what, what family should be. Mothers who sacrifice for their children and fathers who, who lead by example and, and speak with the authority of God's word seem to be disappearing from a lot of families. Uh, now this passage isn't teaching us specifically about family, uh, but it might be that if we don't see or if some in the church don't see this type of care as, as very compelling, that's because the family has begun to disappear. But this is the kind of picture that God gives for, for ministry that is faithful to the gospel. Well, there's one more character trait I want to point out to you. The fourth one in this chapter is a transforming message. It's a message that doesn't have the distinctive, not necessarily has the distinctive of being persuasive or convincing or powerful, though all of those traits are, are good to a man's message. But a lot of people can be all of those things without having the gospel. The question isn't so, so much how well does a teacher speak but what does he speak? 
So back in verse 13, we read again, we, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So Paul's pointing out that he was different than the everyday con artists going around speaking fancy things, even in the, the region of Thessalonica. He was a teacher not motivated uh, for himself, but motivated for the Lord. He didn't teach the same way that those other teachers taught. He didn't uh, conduct himself with people the same way those other teachers taught and he didn't speak the same kinds of things that they spoke his words were the very words of god now paul is a different kind of man no person on earth can speak the way paul did because paul was a conduit for god's revelation so a lot of the new testament we have because god spoke to paul very differently than he speaks to people today but teachers today can follow in the pattern that paul has set So God has given his word to Paul. Paul has recorded it for us to transmit further to the church. And verse 13 makes it clear that there is a difference between man's word and God's word. Man's word is weak, but God's word is effective. God's word digs into people's hearts and digs out the sin that is there. And in that gaping hole of of despair over sin, Scripture, God's Word, brings in the testimony of Christ's perfect life and undeserved death and resurrection and power in the place of sinners and grants life. And it's only God's Word that imparts life and wisdom and joy and hope. There's no word of man that can do those things. And so pastors are not architects. Architects, they design things. They draw up plans. They, they put the plans together and say, this is how it should be built. No, pastors are more like carpenters. We take the plans that are already drawn up and we try to convey that to the church. God is the architect who's made the design and made the plan and we want to bring that plan to the church. We're just aiming to follow those plans and see God's design come to pass because it's God's word that has lasting effect in the life of believers. For the Thessalonians, it was as drastic as any. They became people who who were once worshipers of idols, but now they are followers of Christ. And not only followers, but, but in these verses we see they were sufferers for Christ. That is real change. And if a leader in the church is to speak or teach for lasting fruit, then he won't waste his time on on junk food or man's words. He will serve up the pure milk of God's word and serve to God's people the, the nourishing meat that feeds God's hungry people. Something else might affect change in people but anything less than God's word will fall short of eternal change. Well, faithful ministry is marked by, by four commitments that we've thought through in chapter two. A commitment to the gospel, a commitment to God, a commitment to God's people, 
and a commitment to God's word. So let these marks of credibility resound in your your thinking about leadership in the church. And I, I would plead with you that you would pray for the elders of Harvest Point that these truths would be evidently clear in our ministry at this church. And then even beyond that, pray that God would, would raise up men at Harvest Point and, and even in churches around the world that follow this pattern of ministry so that God's church would be strengthened and, and continue on in a strong way. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, I reflect on these, these verses and I, I think, who is powerful for these things? Who can, who can do this? Lord, I, I see this example from the Apostle Paul that, that truly is, is just Paul following the example of our Lord Christ who is motivated to follow the Father and, and serve your people, even sacrifice his own life for the people of God. Father, I know that in our flesh we, we are inadequate for this, but I thank you for your, your power from the Holy Spirit and your, your clarity and your teaching from the word that, that gives us direction. Father, would you strengthen the leaders in Harvest Point Community Church, that, that we would be marked by these character traits, not for our own sake, Lord, but for the sake of your name, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.